I want to, uh, first of all, say thanks for, for battling the traffic and the hordes of people outside. It's a miracle that, we, that any of us got here today. Um, I want to turn your attention to Philippians chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We don't have pew Bibles yet. Maybe we will one day. We are, uh, we're going to begin a series tonight looking at this book, this, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And uh, I don't want to spend much time doing an introduction uh, of the letter, but I do want to say that the reasons we're going to end up here for a while, um, other than the fact that this is where the Lord really led me to uh, in my prayers, uh, are three. I'm going to give you three. There could be many, but three that I'll give you is one is that this is a friendly letter. It's a, it's a letter written from Paul who founded the church in Philippi in the book of Acts chapter 16, about 50 AD or so. It's written perhaps, there's disagreement, but but I'm going to go with the theory that it's written in Rome just after 62 AD or so. So about 12 years after he founded this church. And um, it's written from a friend to friends, from an apostle to the church. And there's a friendly spirit between these two groups. And it's not arising out of any particular problem. And so far as I know at Church of the Cross, we don't have a particular problem at this moment unless somebody's holding something for me as we launch out more and more on our mission together in Boston. So I think this is an appropriate letter. You want to raise your hand? Put that hand down. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a letter about maturing in Christ and growing in Christ. And so it's really appropriate for us, I think, to, to hit this letter. Secondly, um, this letter, perhaps more than any other epistle in the New Testament, reinforces the Beatitudes that we've been studying since February. Some of you are praising God that we're not in Matthew 5 anymore tonight. Um, you might not be as, <laughs> when you find out how long we're going to be in Philippians. But, um, but it's, it, it reinforces the Beatitudes, the model of Jesus as the way of life, the, the heart of Christian character being lived out. And Jesus is the center of this letter. Chapter 2, the, the great well-known hymn about Jesus being exalted to the highest place so that the... So that so that, and given the name that is above every name, so that all people would bow before him and confess him as Lord. He's at the center of this letter, but the letter really unpacks for us much of what we've been studying up to this point as a community. Uh, the Beatitudes are lived out. One example of that is chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, to look to the interests of others, not just to your own. That's an example of meekness that we've talked about um, many times before. And the third reason uh, in, the, in this introduction is that because this letter is laced through with the theme of joy, and I want to suggest that joy is something that, that, our most, that, that the most prosperous nation in the history of the world knows very little about. And that actually the church in that most prosperous nation in the history of the world sometimes often knows very little about as well. And so I think swimming around in a letter for a while in which joy is, is kind of bubbling up to the surface but is always an undercurrent of this letter will be a very helpful thing for us I pray that our community would be defined by the joy of the Lord as our strength, that we would be a community that embraces the, the joyful news, of, the good news of God's salvation in a real and tangible way. So joy will be a theme for us over the next couple of months as we look at Philippians. We're only going to look at the first two verses tonight. And some of you might be disappointed because if you read the first two verses, you'll notice that all they are is Paul saying hello. But I want you to know that they're kind of like a mini Altoid in many ways, that when you look at it, it kind of doesn't seem like much, but when you put it in your mouth and you start to suck on it, it kind of sets your mouth on fire. And there's a lot going on in these first two verses that I didn't want to just skip over, but I really wanted us to take time to see how Paul's setting up this letter and see what we might be able to pick up from it. The question I want to put before you in that vein is how do you view the world in which you live? How do you understand the world 
that you experience on a day-to-day -day basis? And then how do you understand your role, your life within that world? And I would suggest to you that the way that you answer those questions, and some of us may not know the way we would even answer those questions, but the way that those questions are answered defines a lot, it determines a lot about who we will be and what we will do in life. In many ways, answering those questions shapes our passions, it shapes uh, our desires, it shapes how we understand what, what happens to us in the world, it shapes our goals and our dreams, our perspective is shaped by those fundamental questions of how we view the world. What world are you living in? How would you describe the world that you're living in? Paul is, in many ways, well, actually, let me give you a few examples of, of this question. I was riding on an airplane a couple of months ago with a 41-year-old woman. We just started talking, as sometimes happens on the airplane. Um, we talked the whole way to Ohio. And, uh, and at some point in the conversation, she was very honest. She was just very much herself, and I appreciated that a lot. I just asked, so, so what is the purpose of your life? What, what is life for, for you? And she, her basic answer, and I think this is paradigmatic in many ways of our culture, was that life was, life was to be made the most of. That was kind of the way she said it. Life is just about basically making the most of what I can with what I've got. And for her, that meant uh, picking from a smorgasbord of options, of interests, or, or passions, or in a more cynical way, of idols, and choosing to follow those things with all that she had. It also meant protecting herself a lot. She had not yet been married and, and had wanted to be married, and we talked a lot about her experience with men and, and how that had hurt her. And so there was a, a newfound kind of vigor in her to stay away from men as much as possible and kind of protect herself in that way. Um, it meant just embracing a kind of positive attitude about life. That's the way she would answer what, what kind of world is she living in. It's a world that's basically neutral, basically presents you with a, a bunch of different options, and then you go decide what you're going to make of it. I would call it, in some ways, the Oprah Winfrey spirituality of our world. Um, that you go and you make what you want of, of, of the world that you've given, that, that's been given you. Let me take you back to 1997, South Africa, close to your home, Mo. Um, when I was riding in a car with a guy named Peter, he was a Canadian, and we had one of those books. We were just getting to know each other. We were both exchange students at a university in South Africa, and we had one of those books in the car for this long drive on the garden route, uh, which is a beautiful route down to Cape Town on the southern coast of South Africa. That was like 10,000 questions for conversation. You know, one of those books, it's a convenient. And he opens it up, and then the first question that he asks is, what is the purpose of life? And I was like, well, we're going to get to know each other pretty quickly. With this, with this book, this question. And his answer, one word answer, enlightenment. That was his answer. As we got to know each other more and more, I began to see that he was um, basically just compiling together all kinds of different religions and philosophies and trying to make the most of it in his own life. And that you know, he probably had a little bit of the Buddhism mixed in there that, that focuses on enlightenment as, as the end goal. And um, this was for him what the world was about. And so he was traveling the world to see all kinds of things, to experience all kinds of things, to find enlightenment. How would you answer the question of what is the world, what, what world are you living in? What is the world, how do you understand the world in your life and your role within it? This is what Paul is setting up this letter with in verses 1 and 2. Well, let me just read it again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his opening. We start letters, Dear John, 
We finish letters sincerely, Mark. In the ancient Hellenistic world, they started letters by naming who was sending the letter, naming who was receiving the letter, and then saying some kind of greeting. And that's what Paul does here, but that's not all he does. And it's the little amendments to his cultural uh, norm of what a letter is to be that are the, that are the nuggets in these two verses that unveil something deeply uh, informative about who he is and who the Philippians are and how they're meant to understand the world. Three times in these two verses, he mentions Christ Jesus. Once he mentions God the Father. He is making a claim and a statement that he is locating himself and the Philippians in the context of a world that's understood in and through Christ Jesus, in and through the work of God in Christ, the work of the Father in Christ. This is the sphere of reality in which this, the rest of the letter is going to be based, in Christ Jesus. This is where he, is to under, he says you're to understand who you are, to define you, um, to make it clear about the shape of your life. It is this idea of being in Christ Jesus that Paul is getting on about here at the beginning of the letter. And it's an invitation, I think, to us as well. There are many different kinds of realities that we each have many different uh, identities, so to speak, in the world. Some of us are fathers, husbands, wives, mothers, students, employees, uh, neighbors, citizens of the United States, probably all of us or most of us in here. Um, citizens of the world, Westerners for most of us as well. There are lots of different ways in which we could view who we are and our identities. And what Paul is doing is he's cutting right to the core, right to the heart at the beginning of this letter and saying that everything about you and everything about me and everything about our relationship and everything about what I'm about to say only coheres and makes sense in Christ Jesus, in the reality of who God is and who he's revealed to be in his son, Jesus Christ, and in the work of Christ. That's what he's saying here. What can we say about this realm in which Paul is inviting his readers and he, in many ways is inviting us as the church with him to see this as the realm of our reality in Christ Jesus? What can we say about this realm generally? Well, Christ wasn't Jesus' first name, depending on how you read it sometimes, or his last name, depending on how you read it sometimes. In verse 2, it's Jesus Christ, and in verse 1, it's Christ Jesus. It wasn't just a name. For Paul, the, 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 the term Christos, Christ, which means Messiah, which means anointed one, it, it, it unveils a story, a story that, that begins at the beginning of time, before time, and that finds its fulfillment in this one who was sent by God to earth, his son, his one and only son. And so it's... it's it's important that we see that this kind of this is an expansive word. Sometimes we just kind of run over this word Christ, but it's an expansive word that tells us something about um, this reality in which we live. The, the story begins Genesis 1 and 2. I'm not going to give you the whole thing, but I'm going to give you just a couple of the highlights. Genesis 1 and 2, that the world that God made was good. And it had structure to it. And it had rhythm to it. And it had order to it. And at the end of his creative acts, at the end of the sixth day, God says what? He says, this is very good. He says, the, the, the world is very good. And this world uh, that God made was, was, was exploding with life. There is, a, there is a potential for life in the creation that God has made. A potential for life. You see it in the trees that God makes. That, just, that, that they reproduce one another. He didn't just make trees. He made trees that make trees. He made animals that could reproduce. He made human beings that could reproduce to be fruitful and multiply. He made a world that was teeming with life. 
and he made it good. And this is where the story begins. But for some of you who know that in chapter 3, something else happens. There's an entrance into this very good world of order and structure and harmony and wonder of this thing called rebellion, of sin, of a turning away from God, of saying, you know, this order and structure and hierarchy that I'm made into is not good enough for me. I'm going to go my own way. And the way the serpent begins it in chapter 3 is, did God really say? And then Adam and Eve, you know, the story kind of fall into this trap of thinking that they know better than the one who made them. And so the good world that God made is corrupted by this thing that we as Christians call sin. You could understand it in its most basic form as rebellion, running away from our design, from who God made us to be. And the world becomes this place that's inherently good, but is marred. It's, it's tainted. And we continue to experience the tainted nature of this world in our lives today. But in the Messiah, this is where I'm going with this word of Christ, in the Messiah, God is at work again to do something wonderful. He's at work again to restore what he had originally made, to put his world back together again, to rescue and redeem it. And it says at the end of the story in Revelation, behold, God is making all things new. God is a God who's making new creation out of this world. He's rescuing the world. And his rescue comes through his son, Jesus. So Jesus is on a rescue mission. He's on a restoration mission. In 1980, the Vatican came out with a plan to restore the Sistine Chapel, this great masterpiece of Michelangelo that was painted in four years from 1508 to 1512 in the Pope's private chapel in the Vatican City. And they started this work of restoration. And, some, and there, there's some controversy over whether that was good or bad if you're a real kind of real artist. But um, the illustration of the point is that Jesus is doing a restoration work to the good creation of God, which has been covered over with, with the muck and the mire of rebellion and of running away from him. He's here to do restoration work, to put things back together. And his restoring work is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's life-giving. It's new. It's, it's, it's filled with all kinds of potential. And this is the world in which Paul and his audience is being located by Paul's expansion of the typical first century letter opening in Philippians 1, 1 and 2. This world where the anti-God power, which might be most expressed in self-exaltation, the self being raised up to this place of preeminence, is being undone by the power of God in his Son. He's undoing that power in people. And he's undone it in Paul. And he's undone it in the church in Philippi. And he's undone it in our lives if we know Jesus. And this is the work. This is the revolution. Sometimes we use that word. The revolution of Jesus in the world. So he's doing this kind of revolutionary, restorative work. And this is the realm in which we're to understand our lives. And then Paul unpacks just a few things about this realm. This realm of Christ Jesus that we find ourselves in today as well. He calls himself and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus. That whole hierarchy that we were talking about in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a real harmony in that. There's, there's blessing in that. Anytime we, we, we serve something else other than the one who made us, we find our lives frustrated. We find ourselves struggling with futility. And in Christ, God is restoring that original hierarchy and the harmony that comes with us by putting us back into this place of a servant or of a slave. 
underneath Christ. Now, you might say, well, if I'm looking for life, the first thing I'm not looking for is to become a slave. And the way we, the Bible would answer that question is to say, you don't have a choice about being a slave. You'll be a slave to something. You might just be a slave to your own dreams and your own ambitions. You might be a slave to the creation in the form of addictions, which is just simply taking the creation and trying to find something that we could only find in the Creator, whether it be drugs or sex or work or whatever else that we could call as an addiction. But you'll be a slave. And what Christ is doing is He's making us His slaves. Paul identifies himself and Timothy, with whom he writes the letter, as slaves of Christ Jesus, servants of Christ Jesus. And this is the way to life. Paul is unpacking that a little bit here, that we're brought under the authority of Jesus in all things in our lives. Whether, and, and, and this is in every way, that we're brought under the authority of Jesus in business, in art, in, stu in studies, in relationships with our neighbors, in eating, in drinking, in everything. We're brought under his authority. And when we come back into that hierarchy, which is hardwired in our souls, whether we acknowledge it or not, there is blessing that comes about. So this is one of the glimpses of that realm that we're brought into this place of servanthood so that the, the measurement of greatness in this kingdom, in this realm of Jesus Christ, is not as it is in the world, how many servants do you have? But is how many are you serving? That's the way to greatness in the work of God in Christ. A second picture that we get is the way Paul identifies the church, the people in Philippi. He says, to all the saints. Now, saints is another word that you wouldn't necessarily say to somebody, hey, you want to you really have life? Well, become a saint. Because our, our picture of saints is kind of like they're irrelevant, you know? Um, they're, they're, they're a bit boring, perhaps, maybe a bit one-dimensional. All that they do is probably sometimes think of, of monks or nuns and monasteries or, or convents and, and people who are just kind of removed and, and aren't connected. Um, we think that they might be a, a bit elite, too, perhaps, just not something that we can attain to. But actually, this idea of being saints, and notice Paul doesn't differentiate in the church in Philippi. One of the casualties of a good impulse to exemplify um, great models of sanctity in, in sainthood in the historical church is that it's had this tendency to de-emphasize the biblical truth that everybody who comes to Jesus is equally holy. And that's what being a saint means. It means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be given over to, to the use for God and His purposes. No longer stuck in the profane uh, boundary-crossing world in which we have been brought up. But to be set apart. It means to be cleansed. To have the, the, to go back to the Michelangelo thing, the restoration, the, the dust and the years of, of kind of darkening wiped off of our hearts to be cleansed and made new. And then it means to be given this call to now walk in this new kind of life, a new kind of way, following Jesus in all things. If this is the realm of Christ Jesus in which we're called to be and are and defines our lives, then we as those who follow him are called to flee from sin, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We heard that in the Beatitudes. To seek a purity of heart. We heard that in the Beatitudes. That we might be God's agents. New kinds of saints. I'm talking about like barista saints and bartender saints and, and mom saints and dad saints and student saints. 
new kinds of saints. Not this kind of um, rarefied thing, but very much tangible, this worldly kinds of saints who are in the world like Jesus came among us and penetrated the world, who are living their lives to the glory of God and for his purposes to be lived out through them. This is a, a second picture that he gives. So he says, your slaves, your saints, and then just a couple of other things. He says in this greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The way in which this realm of Christ Jesus, this new creation work that God is doing, is begun, and the way in which this realm of Christ Jesus continues and expands is not by our own doing. It's not by our own strength. It's not by our own efforts. It's by the grace of God, which simply means it's by His power and His authority because He chose to do it because He wanted to glorify His name and because He loved us. Not because we were lovable, but because He loved us. And so this grace is what defines this new community of this new creation work. It's a realm in which God's grace is bubbling up from within the heart and is coming upon us through one another, through his word, through our time together in worship, in all kinds of ways. And this grace produces a poverty of spirit. Again, another beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, in which an apostle who's been called by God to lead, this, lead the church in this new creation work that Christ Jesus is doing, identifies himself as a slave. It's interesting that he says overseers and deacons as well. He's, he's appealing to some of the leadership in Philippi. And yet, he calls himself a slave. He's modeling this poverty of spirit that's the only way of living in this community of saints. Because we only become slaves in a proper way and saints in a proper way by the grace of God working in us. We were dead in our trespasses. And God made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace, you've been saved. This is by God's doing, God's initiative. And the final thing that Paul kind of points into a window of this realm is peace, which for a first century Jew who's writing this letter means shalom, which means this, this not, just con, not just absence of conflict, but a, but a whole kind of blessing and harmony upon all relationships and all of life. And this is the fruit of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. This is the fruit of a community that identifies itself as slaves of Jesus Christ and as saints in Christ Jesus. It is peace. It's a gift of God. He's referred to as the God of peace later in chapter 4. It's the gift of God that comes in the heart. It says he guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus also in chapter 4. That comes into our heart and that also leads us to this place of satisfaction and contentment. That's the place out of which this peace arises, that we've been, set at, at, we've been set still in the Lord Jesus Christ, made peaceful. And then we can go out not scrambling for our own advancement, our own things, but laying down our lives as agents of peace and reconciliation and shalom in the world to which God has sent us as slaves and as saints. This is the realm within which the communication that Paul is giving to the church in Philippi takes place. This is how he understands his life and our lives are meant to be understood in the same way. The problem is that there are a lot of competing realms for us as followers of Jesus today. A lot of competing realms. If this is the one that is to define us most basically, the realm of Jesus Christ, as slaves and as, as saints, we have lots of other things vying for our attention and our time and our energy and our efforts in the world today, which do this. They make this determinative realm 
the realm, the kingdom of God in Christ take a secondary place to something else. Instead of what is the biblical pattern of our identity in Christ infiltrating every other aspect of who we are as God's people. Every other part of our lives, whether you're a student or you have a job somewhere uh, or, or your neighborhood, wherever, the, the grace of God in Christ infiltrates this realm, this identity, this basic nature of who we are, infiltrates every other aspect of our lives. But instead, what happens more often than not, we find is that this truth of who we are in Jesus begins to take a secondary place to something else. So we can have this kind of um, other ambition or other identity that's taking all of our attention and shaping our passions and our desires. And the book of Philippians is going to address this again and again and again, where Paul says this wonderful phrase at the end, in chapter 3. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is this primary understanding in Paul that it is Christ and Christ alone who defines him and who shapes him. And let me end by saying this one, giving you this one illustration of the way in which this realm of Christ Jesus that Paul is orienting this letter into and our lives, this story of new creation, let me show you how that determines his own life by saying this. Paul's writing this letter from prison. He's writing this letter unsure, as we'll see in the weeks to come, whether he will live or die. He's writing this letter from a place that he has no freedom to go out and do what he believed that God had called him to do, which was to go preach uh, at the ends of the earth. He was on his way to Spain when he wrote the letter to the Romans or years before. This was his ambition. Not was it just his ambition, but he thought this is what God had called him to do. And all of those ambitions and plans have been put on hold. And Paul finds himself confined in prison in Rome. And yet, what does he say in chapter 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again rejoice. For Paul, it was no other realm that determined and defined his heart, his experience, his passion, his goals, his dreams, but the realm of being one of Christ's own, being a slave of Jesus, being a saint set apart for the work of Jesus, living by the grace and the power of God at work in the world and in his own heart, and being an agent of peace even in that place of persecution. And the people to whom he writes are also struggling and being persecuted and suffering for the sake of Jesus. So this example of joy in the early church that we see in this letter is an example of the way in which the realm of Christ, our identity, the basic foundation of our lives in Christ, is infiltrating everything else instead of everything else marginalizing our identity in Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.